I'm Jill Rowe. In part two of this conversation, Steve Chalk chats with David Bailey about his book, The Lost Message of Paul. In this episode, they continue to wrestle with some of the big questions that arise from St. Paul's words and writings and help us understand how we can learn from Paul about inclusion and being followers of the way of Jesus. This episode was recorded back in 2019. Last time we were together, Steve, you and I were chatting about how you see Jesus as the great reconciler, but you aren't a universalist. Um, Say a little bit more about that. And then I've got some questions about what that means for mission, evangelism, discipleship. Mm. Yeah, we'll take each one of Mm. those on its own, I think. But Mm. just say a little bit more about how you see Jesus as the great reconciler. Just Mm. kind of a bit of a recap from Mm. the last one, really. Well, I I think the important thing actually isn't how I see Jesus, it's how Paul saw Jesus. So these ideas that I have, as, as I said last time when we were together, mm. they're not based on my thinking, they're mm. based on scholarship, mm. truly. I spent three years working on this book and the first year and a half all I did was read and I read texts, some of which I swear I'm probably the only person on earth to ever read <laughs> from beginning to end because they're reference, mm. theological reference books mm. that a PhD student would dip into a particular chapter or a particular section. But to read them all the way through is, an un, I think, an unusual thing. There are <laughs> so, so I spent lots of time thinking, thinking about this. And the truth is, as I say, it's not what I think, it's what Paul thought that matters. And as everyone will tell you, a text without a context is a pretext for anything you want to make it. So in other words, what we have to do is understand this man, Paul, this follower of Jesus, this person who was against the followers of Jesus and was bent on a course of Mm. slaughtering them, Mm. persecuting them, and then has this extraordinary event happen in his life on a road to Damascus, which totally turns him around. And from that moment on, he pursues the mission of telling everyone about Christ Mm. with the same energy and vigour that he was using in the opposite direction until up until that moment. So we've got to delve into who Paul was. And as you delve into who Paul was, you discover that he was a Jew, a very committed Jew, and he was a first century Jew. And first century Jews had a very particular kind of belief. Now we know this because you see in Paul's writing, but we know it from lots of other writings around the New Testament. And again, this is standard. Nobody, nobody, this isn't, nobody would dispute this at all. Paul's understanding of life was that the Jews had been chosen. They were God's people. They were chosen by God. They were rescued, saved, not because of what they'd done, but they were rescued because of who God was, rescued by grace. It's a strange thing, isn't it, that often people would tell you, and I was told when I was first Christian, that Christianity is the only religion in the world that's based on grace and forgiveness and everyone else is trying to reach up to God. Were you told that? Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know it's not true, don't you? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Completely yeah. not true. In fact, even the word grace itself is a Hebrew word. You know, so so Judaism is based on God's goodness, God's covenant with yeah. his people. Yeah. He'd rescued them, mm. the Exodus, mm. and he would always rescue them. God could be relied on mm. to fulfill his promises. He was going to bless Israel and he was going to make them a blessing to the whole world, which is quite yeah. important. Yeah. Well, 
The story, of course, goes wrong in the sense that the people are in in the promised land and life's great. But then what happens is, first of all, the northern half, Israel, and then the southern half of the kingdom, Judah, as it was called, they, they're both captured the north by the Assyrians and then the way things happen with empires, the Assyrian Empire itself was taken over by the Babylonian Empire and the Babylonian Empire swept through the southern kingdom. So everything crumbled. Mm. But it's still away in exile in Babylon. Mm. The people cry out and they know Mm. still. They don't know how, Mm. but they know God can be relied on. Mm. We're chosen Mm. by grace. Nothing to do with us. Mm. We've screwed up. We've Mm. gone wrong. We admit that. But... We're chosen. So it's all going to be okay. Anyway, they then get back into their land and... but. But things are still not quite right because they're ruled over by the Greeks and then by the Romans by the time Jesus and Paul were were born. And they, they're at home, but they're still not free. They're kind of not in exile, but still in exile. Mm, mm, mm. And they yearn for the Messiah to come, the liberator. Messiah simply means liberator. And, of course, Palm Sunday, the story, as Jesus rises in Jerusalem, they mm. cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, which was a chant for the Messiah, save us, save us. But it wasn't, we hope you'll save us. It's we know the Messiah will save us and we think you might be him. You might be the Messiah. So all Jews are longing for the liberator because they believe that God signed on the dotted line. There's a covenant and God has to fulfill God's promises. It's nothing to do with God is faithful to his people. Yeah. We still sing hymns about God's faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. (laughs) As hymn goes, But we don't believe that great is God's faithfulness, yeah. only for a few, yeah. you know. Yeah. So this was for everyone. Now, Paul is a Jew who understands all of that, but he doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's why he's persecuting the first Christians, as we call them. But the reason he's persecuting them isn't because they believe in a Messiah. He believes in a Messiah. It's just that in order to fulfill the promises, the Messiah has to be alive. Mm. And Jesus is definitely dead. <laughs> Therefore, he's the wrong kind of Messiah and he's just diluting the vision of Israel. But then on that road to Damascus, Paul encounters the risen Jesus. And once he's realized that Jesus is alive, because of what he believes, too technical to go into, but I'll deal with it in my book, about certain texts in our old, te- what we call the Old Testament, about what God will do in defeating death through his Messiah and then will bless all the peoples of the whole earth, everyone. That's what he believes has happened. So Paul is still a Jew. He believes God's people are chosen. He believes, though, that the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, has turned out to be the Messiah for the whole earth. Mm. So now the whole of humanity Mm. is chosen on the very same basis that he's always believed the Jews Mm. are chosen. Mm. That's why I believe that everyone will be saved Mm. because that's what Paul believed. Yeah, so that's that's why inclusion is is the heart of your argument yeah. in, in the book. So taking that, what do you think that means then? Should we not bother with mission? Should we not bother with evangelism? You know, what do, what do those terms mean for, for you yeah, in, good, in the context of the book? Yeah, good so. question, because people say, well, if it's true that God loves everyone, <laughs> mm. 
oh, what's the point in going to church then? <laughs> you know? And I always think it's so funny because it kind of gives it away, doesn't it? I never really did enjoy this. I just was going because I'm like, you know. I don't want to go now. Yeah, it's a great insurance policy, you know. Pay now, but it's the, yeah, the rewards later. Um, the point is... Paul believes this, and it sends him out to everyone. He's got good news to bring. Mm. He's got good news to bring mm. for more than one reason, actually. First of all, as Paul says constantly through his writing, mm. live this way, do these things, put off these habits, put on those habits. He's not saying put on these habits, those habits, and you'll get saved. Mm. He's saying you are in, mm. as in, in Adam all die, so in Christ all live. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. You know, his great day when he writes 1 Corinthians mm. chapter 13, though I speak in the tongues of men and angels, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And then he comes back, doesn't he, in the end, and he says, love never fails. <laughs> Well, he either means love never fails or he thinks, well, it sometimes does. Well, that was a bit rash. I'll have to strike that through. God is love and God never fails. So he believes that. He's a Jew. He believes it. He believes it. But he's saying, live in line. These things are true of you. Now live like it. Mm. Live in sync with the truth. So what do you think that means? What what does that mean for people in, in Oasis Church, Waterloo? What does it mean for Christians ev everywhere or people of faith everywhere? What does it mean well, what, to live like that? What it means is this, first in Paul's terms, because I have to deal with what I think is a, a verses that sometimes confuse mm. people. Paul says, adulterers, liars, mm. cheats, mm. swindlers, mm. slave owners, mm. slave um, traders can have no part in God's kingdom. Mm. And that gets read as, uh oh, if you've lied or cheated or stolen, you're going to go to hell because mm. God's kingdom is seen as that place, you know, yeah, heaven yeah, afterwards. Yeah. I've lied. But the point is, we've all lied. Mm. We've all cheated. <laughs> so hell, heaven's going to be empty. <laughs> but that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's saying, in as far as your life is conformed to the way of Christ mm. and is characterized by love and selflessness, and joy, and peacemaking, and forgiveness, mm. and service. In as far as that's true of you or me, I live within God's kingdom. God's kingdom is here mm. on earth. Mm. In as far as I lie or cheat or I'm self-centered or I exploit other people and use other people, I don't inherit God's kingdom in my life, God's dimension. Those people who act like this can't inherit God's kingdom. And I know when I've you know, I've been married to the same woman for 38 years. You know, every marriage has its ups and downs. Sure. I know when I've been self-centred, mm. I've not inherited God's kingdom. Yeah. You feel rotten inside, mm. don't you? You mm. know you're out of sync. Mm. But I know when I give myself to others, as Jesus said, love others the way you love yourself, then actually you inherit this sense of joy. Mm. You find yourself. That's what Paul's saying. Mm. So he spends the rest of his life on the transport systems of the day, which happens to be walking, mm. riding a donkey, or getting in a boat, yeah. at least four of which sink yeah. while he's in them. <laughs> he spends his life doing that and being imprisoned mm. and being flogged and being driven out of town and being sworn at and mm. spat at and laughed at because he's saying, you know, live this way. Mm. Don't live that way. Live this way. Do mm. these things. Mm. It mm. matters to him that much. Yeah. So, yeah. so people would say, wouldn't they? Well, if you um, if you believe that God loves everyone, why would you get involved in mission? Mm. It's because I believe that God loves mm. everyone mm. that I'm so involved yeah. in and, mission. And and to make 
life better for those people if if they are struggling yeah. or, or if you know. Jesus said it mm. when I was hungry mm. did you feed me mm. when I was naked mm. did you clothe me mm. when I was homeless mm. did you welcome me in mm. whenever you do it to the least of these you do it to me Jesus mm. is saying live in sync with what's already true mm. live in sync and then in that same parable which is Matthew 25 he says and if you don't it's like living on Gehenna mm. now I ought to say that um, people say, oh, but he said, you know, I send them away into eternal darkness. Mm. Well, too complicated to explain right here, so people have to buy my book and, <laughs> and read it. But those words, we now know, we didn't years mm. ago, but we now know because of we can compare the use of the Greek words that are used to translate what Jesus said mm. with Aristotle and various others. We now know that what you'll be sent away into eternal darkness or internal punishment mm. actually means into a time of pruning. Mm. That's scholarship. Yeah. It's yeah. scholarship. Sure. It's not my opinion. <laughs> it's what the words mean. Yeah. A time of pruning. Mm. As Paul says, 1 Corinthians, we talked about this last time, didn't we? Mm. The purging fire mm. might burn yeah. up but by, burn up your works, but the purging fire of love mm. cleanses everything. Mm. How do I know that, by the way? I'm probably talking too much. Because we work with 30,000 kids in really poor communities, some of them. We work with kids who've been, they've never known love. In fact, just recently, uh, we've, um, the the Ministry of Justice have asked us, Oasis, if we run a youth prison. Why? Because they know it's got to be about rehabilitation, not revenge. It's not about locking people up. It's about giving them hope and that hope is born out of love and time. Mm. It's called a trauma-informed approach, if Mm. that's what the psychologist would say. It just means love and time. So if we know that love and time melts the hardest heart when you encounter the fire of God's cleansing, purging love, you're transformed. Mm. That's what the New Testament mm. teaches. Mm. So, Steve, earlier we in the last episode, we talked about faith and faithfulness. Now, mm. you've done quite a lot of kind of technical work mm. in your book around those terms, mm. and you began to touch on that last time. Do you want to just say a little bit more about that, the implications of that, about the implications of it's by Jesus's faithfulness, not yeah. by our faith in Christ? So I've, so I've got a friend called John. Mm. Um, he's my lifelong friend. I've known him since I was a boy. We were in the boys' brigade together. He's a little bit older than me. And he's done a lot better in life than I have in terms of his wealth. John has stayed faithful to Oasis. In fact, we wouldn't even be sitting in this room recording this thing if it wasn't for him. Mm. But the truth is that John will often say to me, Steve, I wish I was you because you have faith. We went to the same boys' brigade, like I say, in the same Sunday school. He says, Steve, you have faith and you can believe in God. I can't, I can't, I can't. He racks himself that he Mm. can't. Mm. And he feels doomed because he can't, because he got the same teaching as me as a kid. But he really can't. Mm. He's the most genuinely, absolutely the most generous man I've ever met in my entire life. He serves what we do, but he can't believe And the gospel he was taught was he would be saved by his faith in Christ. And he can't. So if we're saved by our faith in Christ, that's, you know, you're saved by your faith, not by works. It turns out that works, that faith is the biggest, hardest work of them all. It's so hard to believe. And how many people do you know who just can't believe? Or they're 
plunged into depression and guilt because mm. they don't believe think they believe enough. Yeah. yeah so how know, much faith is enough? How much faith is enough? How much <laughs> yeah. faith is saving faith? How much doubt will rule you out? Who's yeah. in? Who's out? Am I in? Am I out? My friend got ill. We were told to pray. They weren't healed. They died. Was it my lack of faith? Did I pray the wrong kind of prayer? Did our church pray that? Do you know, this is horrible. Mm stuff and it's no good saying I've got it wrong Steve I've not got it wrong because I've been a pastor for 40 years I know I've got I know and you all know everybody knows this is what happens to people so if we're saved by our faith in Christ it's miserable it's miserable but in so, actual so, fact so that's that's quite a thing to say Steve that's quite a bold claim mm. how, how do you uh, kind of explore that what What's your answer to that? Well, my answer to it is back to Ed Sanders, who we talked about last time, and um, and to you know the new perspective mm. thinkers, which turn out to be the same as the old perspective thinkers. It was just Lutheran, Calvin, and Co. that got stuck in the middle, um, which we've not explored why, but we can, we can, we may, we may not. But 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 the point is, we now know that the Greek word for faith is pistis. Well, we've known all the way along. It's pistis. But we now know that it, it's much better to translate it faithfulness rather than faith. I tell the story in the book of Mother Teresa. Mm. And Mother Teresa, is a, a, she has an extraordinary story because um, what happens is to her is um, she lives most of her life. I talked about this on one of the, the other po- podcasts that we did. She lives most of her life feeling that she doesn't have faith. But when she died all the letters where she explained that she didn't have faith, instead of the Vatican getting rid of them, burning them, they chose to keep them because they said they showed her faithfulness in spite of her lack of feelings of faith. What Paul is talking about is, God loves you, you're in. Now live faithfully to this. Live this way, whatever you feel, just live this way because you're loved by God anyway. You're not trying to prove it, you're not trying to get in, you are in. Just live this way. So that's the first thing I say, which is a great liberation. Mm. It's nothing to do with me. Hey, it's nothing to do with my faith levels. You know that term they mm. use? Yeah, use? Yeah, yeah. It's just all to do with God. Mm. So that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, so can you kind of, what the, the, the ripples of that are huge, really, mm. and the implications of that are, are huge. How would you articulate some, some of those? Well, I think the ripples of that are simply that the gospel, inverted commas, that's been preached so often at people is not a gospel at all. Mm. Actually, it never was a gospel, was it? It was bad, bad news. One of the most terrible things I ever did, to be honest, is when I was a theological student, my sister who's two years younger than me, who um, was living a, a completely different life. Well, on Christmas it was. We got talking about what a Christian was. And I told her that she wasn't a Christian and she needed to pray and find faith in Jesus. And I'll never forget, she sat at the table and she cried. She cried not because she was convicted. She cried because I judged her. Mm. That was a terrible thing Mm. to do because God is love. Mm. I wasn't so loving. Mm. I'm still not so loving, but I'm slowly learning. So I think the implications are huge. The message we have for people. 
Everybody's struggling in life. I know you are, David. <laughs> <laughs> more, than, more than most. Exactly. We're all struggling, aren't we? Who's not carrying a heavy burden in life? Where's the good news in? And now on top of all of this, you've got to have a load of faith. The irony is, of course, that the old medieval Catholic church, which Luther wanted to stand out against their message, what he wanted to stand out against, as you know, is that the church taught, pay this much and you'll be saved. Penance, yep. you know. You've got to do uh, pay for your indulgences, mm. etc. And it's time off purgatory mm. for your relatives and all the rest of it. You keep paying and it's all okay. And we say that was all about works. Mm. Well, actually, being honest, it wasn't as bad as the new system because, you know, I might not have been able to afford whatever the priest wanted. You know, he says, Steve, you know, 20 quid, and you're in. <laughs> now, I go, you probably only earn five a year or only earn ten a year or save up, yeah. you know. So I save up and I take mm. my gift mm. and I pay my penance mm. or whatever. Yeah, and you're free. And I'm free. It's been tough, but I've paid and I'm free. <laughs> yeah. The problem with faith is you can never get enough. <laughs> That's why I say it's the hardest work of all. Mm. I had faith yesterday, but I'm doubting today. <gasps> I this terrible thought that God might not exist. Oh, no, I'm damned. Yeah. I'm cursed, you mm. see. So it makes you keep paying and it keeps you in this place of uncertainty. Mm. And mm. I know that everybody who's listening to this knows this because they all know people in churches that are riddled with guilt. Yeah. Yeah. And shame. Yeah, I think I said the sinner's prayer about five times because <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was saved the first time. Yeah. <laughs> do, do, do you know what I mean? You're so, not sure. If, so. I, was, I was part of a church where mm. where they taught us that you um, the sign of being saved, mm. saving faith, was that you'd speak in tongues. You know, like I tried and tried and tried. You know, I even learned in the end words to because people do that kind of yeah. thing. So, Unfortunately. Yeah, no, it's true. So I went uh, and somebody said, you just, I'll have a shandy, I'll have a shandy, Kalagasita, Kalagasita. <laughs> and that is, I'll have a shandy, shandy, Kalagasita. <laughs> and somebody in my youth group, his name's Keith, he actually said, that's the way to do it, Steve, it'll keep them all quiet. I'll have a shandy, I'll have a shandy. I mean, we're, we're, la we're, we're laughing, but it's actually, it's terrible, well, isn't it? it is terrible because... because it's kind of like uh, spiritual abuse, really, isn't it? Well, it, it? So, you named it, you know. it is... It is spiritual abuse, and it's so far from anything Paul is talking about, who is only the follower of Jesus. I'm not picking him up to anything else. But here's the thing. When you read the letters that Paul wrote, check it out. He never gets past the first couple of sentences, three sentences, without getting to, I'm an apostle, saved by grace, grace to you. The grace of the Lord Jesus. Mm. He says it lots of different mm. ways. Mm. But you check, there is no letter that Paul ever wrote where he doesn't talk about grace mm. in the first few sentences. Mm. Why? Because he was wrong and he was a legalist mm. and he was out to slaughter these, these mm. followers of Jesus and he encounters Jesus and he thinks, I'm done for, I'm chosen the wrong way, mm. but he encounters grace. Mm. And he realises that this grace that's extended to all Jews is extended to everyone. Mm. It's grace that's at the heart of mm. it, God's faithfulness. Mm. I think Paul is picking up on what, obviously, what Jesus said, or maybe it's not obvious, but in, in you know, in Luke 4, where he reads the scroll in, in the temple, and he and you, you'll know it well, and 
Um, he uses those bits from Isaiah, Isaiah, but he misses a bit out because mm. his Jewish audience are listening to him, and he, <laughs> and they're expecting a, uh, they're expecting him to judge the mm. Gentiles. So, but what Jesus does in that moment is he takes a text of judgment, and he turns it into a text of mercy, mm. and and they get they go mad, they get mad, don't they? Mm. Because they want to throw him off off of off of yeah. a cliff. You really read the end of the story. Yeah. It's really angry. They get really cross because what Jesus is saying is that actually this message isn't just for you; it's for everyone. Everyone. Mm. Everyone has a is included. Yeah. One of the really interesting things, I think that got me on to all this stuff, just one of the threads that got me to thinking this way, is my dad taught me as a kid that the Pope was the Antichrist. Right. You know, that's a Protestant that's, Yeah, yeah, and it's a strong statement. Yeah, it's a strong statement. <laughs> he taught me the Pope was the Antichrist and his cardinals were his henchmen. Right. Well, in my 30s, I got a contract working for TV in this country mm. and I went, I, w- I was one day asked to go and interview the Catholic Cardinal, and um, I was scared. And I remember sitting in the in the Cardinal's palace in Westminster, and I thought, boy, if my dad knew I was here, he'd kill me. Mm. Well, actually, I met the Cardinal, and we sat and talked for a long while before the television uh, cameras arrived, and I met a person just full of beauty and grace. Mm, mm. He became my friend, mm, my good mm, friend. Mm. And I realised then, I remember thinking, why did my dad tell me that the Catholics were wrong? And I asked the cardinal, he said, oh, well, we teach it about the Protestants. <laughs> he said, oh, yeah, that's Catholic dogma the other way round. And that got, that's what got me onto it. I realised that every religious group in the world counts themselves in and everyone out, yeah. else, yeah. everyone else out. Yeah. So the Pentecostals and the, the, yeah. that count themselves in and the mainstreamers out and, mm. you know, and yeah. the Catholics count themselves in, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, yeah. and the charismatics mm. say the non-charismatics haven't really quite got it. And, and everyone goes around doing yeah. this judging yeah. thing. Yeah. And if God is that small-minded, <laughs> we're done for. Yeah. Why is it that the good news is always good news for me and my mates, <laughs> but very bad news for everyone I don't like? Yeah. Yeah. How come everybody's on the winning side mm. in their view? Mm. That's what I realised. Yeah. It's all a crock. Yeah. Like we said, you talk about in your book about being human is enough to get you in. Um, and I think in the last episode I made a rather flippant comment about axe murderers and mm. so forth. So is everyone really in? Is, well, is, 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 you know, what about if those the people who do... Cause, you know, we only need to look at the news and read the news and you can see that people do horrendous things to mm. other people. Mm. What about them? What about them? Well, in actual fact, um, in the last episode, again, you were saying, or I was saying, or we were saying, that there were some things that, you know, I disagree with Tom Wright about. Mm. Um, and this is one of them. Because if you read Tom's books, he's written a book called Signs of Hope, uh, surprised by hope. Surprised by hope, yes. S- yeah. Surprised by hope. Yeah. and uh, But in it, he says, just what you've said, that in the end, a just God has to judge evil. Mm. And that in the end, there will be some people who become ex-humans and endure being ex-human and being beyond any compassion 
for eternity. They live on like that because a righteous God has to judge evil. The truth is, though, that that makes a huge number of assumptions. Mm. So here is, Tom's my friend, a white, privileged member of the elite class who happens to be a bishop who, if you read Surprised by Hope, writes the foreword from the castle Durham. He lives in a castle, he's white, he's elite, he's educated, he's Oxbridge, he's all of those things. And he's judging the evil ones, deciding who's evil. Now, I love Tom, he's great. But the point is that the view from the senior common room of a university is very different, I've learned in life, than the view from a damp council housing estate when you do not have money enough to heat your flat and eat and feed your children. The view is very different. And then you get to ask the questions, so who actually has caused this evil? Is it the guy who ends up in a fury beating someone up or uh, because um, someone has strolled onto his turf and delivered drugs where he used to deliver drugs? Or is it the barons that control this? And is it the multinationals and the corporates that have created a world of relative poverty where the haves always have more and more and more and those who don't have have less and less? Mm. I think that the, the fire at Grenfell Tower demonstrated this to our society. Mm. Who put that cladding on that building? Mm. Who left it there? Mm. Who didn't want to spend out on it? Mm. Or who, who wanted to cover up the original building? <laughs> and who, exactly, all of those things. So all of those things. So in our work, in Oasis work, I work with kids who are angry, really deeply angry. And I'm not talking about one or two people. I'm talking about many kids that we work with. But if your dad, if you'd watched your dad murdering your mother, if your mother was a prostitute, if you happened to live in the brothel, the local brothel, if you've been stigmatised, if you've been laughed at constantly because of who you were, because of your colour, if you've watched your parents with nothing, actually it makes you angry. Well, you say, OK, so it's not the kid's fault, it's his dad's fault because he murdered the mother. But in actual fact, even... Our science now, there's something called epigenetics. We know that um, these traits are passed on. It's not just social memory. It's the way our brains are formed. We know that the harm done in one generation is linked to the way that future generations live. So my point for Tom is, yeah, God's got to deal with evil. question is how? Mm. And the question is, who's really responsible? Mm. Who's really responsible? And the answers are not that simplistic. Mm. There are many people, of course, who believe that it's the church that has been in the position of power, the Church of England, the bishops sitting in the House of Lords because of privilege. Do you see, mm. I'm not suggesting, I'm, I'm not trying to start a revolution, but I'm saying simply this, God is the righteous judge. Mm -hmm. Righteous means right, wise, loving, kind who sees all secrets mm. now the truth is i'm a messed up bloke so if god's 
going to judge anyone, you know, badly. He's got to start with me. But I know that in God's hands, even someone as crumpled as me is, um, is loved. Mm. I should go on to say that people say, and um, I think Tom does say this, but I'm not picking on Tom. I think many say, but what about Hitler? Because they don't mention the axe murderer. They always say, what about Hitler? In fact, they do say, you know, the liberal Western elite, it's easy for us to say that everyone's in, but what about justice and what about Hitler? Well, of course, what these um, writers forget is they are the Western liberal elite. It was Karl Barth, though, as we said, who said, I am not a universalist, but I do believe that Christ is the reconciler of all. And here's the thing about Karl Barth, which I know you know. Mm. Karl Barth lived in Nazi Germany. Mm. He lived under the Third Reich. Mm. And he was one of very few German church leaders who had the courage to stand mm. against Hitler. You should read about it, mm. people. The Barman Declaration, mm. his courage. And he was robbed. He ended his life in America because he had to get out of Germany. And his greatest regret, his greatest regret, is that he sent his friend uh, back. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was one of the others, mm. he urged Bonhoeffer to return to Germany and before the end of the war, Hitler had Bonhoeffer hanged by a piano wire. Mm. So Karl Barth knew how evil mm. the Third Reich was. Mm. He knew, he actually knew Hitler. Mm. And yet he says, I'm not a universalist, mm. but I do believe that Jesus Christ is the reconciler of all. It's not my job to stick up for Adolf Hitler. It's not my job to stick up for the guy who I read, we've all, I read about just the other week, who stabbed someone else on a train yeah. in South London yeah. 18 yeah. times yeah. and thrust a knife <clears throat> into him. Yeah. So I ask, why has someone got so much pent up anger that they stab someone 18 yeah. times? They yeah. keep on stabbing, keep on stabbing. Where does all that anger yeah. and trauma from? Where does yeah. it come from? Yeah. Now, yeah. The, the truth is this. That we know now, our neuroscientists know, our scientists know, our understanding of the human brain, we know this. We know that some people, because of the dysfunctionality that's gone on in their mm. lives, I write a chapter about this actually, mm. about neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. Their dysfunctionality has gone on in their lives. They're get technical, what's called their prefrontal cortex, the management centre mm -hmm. of their yeah. brain, the bit of our brain that says, I want to punch him, but yeah. I won't. Yeah. You know, that controls the emotions. Yeah, that controls yeah. the emotions. That's so retarded mm. and underdeveloped in its growth. You can actually see this mm. if you take, um, an, uh, not an X-ray, yeah, um, brain, brain scan. Yeah. You can actually see it. You know, you can see it on Google mm. tonight. You know, you can watch it. You can see how the brain is developed differently. Mm. So these people are incapable of making the same rational decisions that I'm able to make because of the love yeah. that's been put into my life. Yeah. Yeah. But God is love and the fire of God's love yeah. melts even the most broken brokenness. Yeah. And I suppose what's important is whatever someone's history is, that person doesn't need to be defined by that history. Their, their story can be redeemed, it can be transformed they, by, mm. by that love and by a nurturing, kind of loving community. Yes. But by the chair, you know, exactly. and, and others, of course. Well, of course, uh, some people, uh, of course, know all about attachment theory. Mm. Attachment theory uh, simply says this, that it's the attachments in life that we have, often, normally, with 
our biological mum or dad or mum and dad, but not necessarily the biological mum or dad. It's an attachment early in life where we feel loved, Mm. held, because we work with loads of little kids Mm. um, and I've got six little grandsons. It's a joy. I I watch one of my children holding their child and I know how therapeutically good that is. Mm, mm. I know what's going on in their brain at that moment. The millions of neural connections mm. that are happening, memories, pathways are being built that mean that in later years, this child will understand love. Mm. And that understanding and that unconditional acceptance will equip them for the ups and downs of life and its relationships. Mm. But tragically, in our society, there are so many young people and older people who've never known that. Sometimes we have to lock people up for their own safety and society's safety. But above the door of every prison in this country is written that our prisons exist for rehabilitation. Mm. We may not do a very good job, but my point is God does. Yeah. So, Steve, we started off the the last episode saying that you made some bold claims in here and um, some of your critics haven't been very kind um, not just kind of in their theological kind of critique but quite personal critique Mm. to you too Uh, in fact I think when I was reading a couple of them some have said that you're not a Christian (laughs) we know from our previous conversations that sometimes you've been called the antichrist Mm. which is kind of Quite a statement, isn't it? So how, how, do you, how do you respond? What's your response to that? My response to that is that Jesus said, this is how everyone will know you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. Mm. Of course we disagree all the time. Mm. Of course we disagree about lots and lots and lots of things. But our task is to hold a respectful, generous conversation with mm. one another. Mm. The reason we disagree It's not just because we have different points of view and opinions with one another on about all sorts of things, you know, um, baptism, church Mm. membership, Christian initiation for a start, you know, those kind of things. Huge, huge uh, differences, but everybody gets along happily over these giant things. But our views in themselves change. We evolve, don't we? Our faith evolves, Mm. our views Mm. develop. Even when we say, and this is final, it's not final because five years down the road we go, yeah, but, you know. Actually, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, I now see it like that and I've read this and I understand that now. How daft I was five Mm. years ago. Mm. The tragedy is that what happens is a person can easily end up saying, my views are God's views. Mm. I believe the Bible straight, you know, all this kind of thing. And then they develop five years on, but they still haven't learned. And they say, I believe the Bible straight. And any, although it's different to what they yeah, believe five years yeah, back, yeah. but still anyone who disagrees with them is thrown out. Yeah. So the thing is, I have my disagreements with a whole number of people mm. that I've mentioned historically mm. and uh, contemporary people. Mm. But truly, do I believe that God doesn't love John Calvin because I have a different view (laughs) to him about election or Martin Luther uh, because he said some dodgy things about Jewish people, which he did? Or do I, you know, do I not love Tom, Tom Wright, although I I think he's not logical in the way he works, all his understanding, which is enormous through to the end. Mm. No, he's wonderful, Mm. you know, he's wonderful. God runs a big tent. (laughs) And, And I think that, so I never find it in my heart 
to write back and say, well, you think I'm going to hell, I think you're going to you know, yeah, hell. Yeah, one, yeah, I don't believe yeah, they are. Yeah. And um, two, I want to, I believe that we need a gracious conversation. Mm. But I don't think the church will be taken seriously mm. by the rest of society until it can have that conversation. Because yeah. when anybody posts anything on social media, you know, on their virtual pulpit, mm. from their yeah. virtual pulpit, or the, their actual real one, the whole world hears now. Mm. And people see the hypocrisy. Yeah. So we've got to learn to love one mm. another and debate. And mm. if we can't have that open and generous debate as part of the church, people just push away and have it somewhere else, yeah. don't they? So what I would say to someone who disagrees with your thoughts mm. or your your mm. theology, I would say re- read the book, mm. <laughs> find out what you you think in, in depth and because it may give you a bigger picture of who God is. Yeah. You, you know, it may give you a different perspective. It what? may kind of illuminate some yeah. of your thinking. And, and even if you end up disagreeing with yeah. you. It sharpens okay. your understanding, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. I often read things mm. that I disagree with. Mm. I read them and I think, well, that's a good point, that's mm. a good point, but I disagree with this and I yeah. disagree, and yeah. it helps me think yeah. through where I stand. Yeah. That's what the church is meant to be. Yeah. And I often say to people in our church, the church I lead, mm. a good talk, a good sermon isn't one where everybody laughs at all the right points and goes away and say, I was told that, I believe exactly that. Yeah. A really good talk is one that sends you away thinking and debating yes. and say, yeah. well, I agree with that, but I disagree with yeah. that. What do you think of this? Yeah. What do you think of that? Yeah. The church has got to learn to have a discussion mm-hmm. without condemning one another. Yeah, without judgment. Without yeah. judgment. So it's it's that process of kind of reading and learning and, and, and thinking is about developing theological literacy, isn't it? Understanding different points of view about who God is and, and understanding where those arguments come from and, and recognising the richness of that discussion mm. that mm. you actually, in that process, you not only learn more about God, but you Mm. learn more about yourself and and your brothers and sisters as well. Yeah, so to talk about someone who I talked about last time, um, William Tyndale, Mm. who gave his life Mm. so that the Bible could be translated into English, extraordinary, Mm. and who translated faith, the faith of Christ, rather than faith in Christ, as Mm. we said last time. Mm. But, you see, if William was in the room, I'd want to have a debate with him Mm. because... Because I've got a difference with him. Mm. And here's the difference. John Fox, who wrote a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, tells the story of William Tyndale. He's a genius. And he tells the story about how one day, um, down in the West Country, before Tyndale had done all the things mm. he went on to do, achieve, he says to a priest outside his church, he's just listened to an appalling sermon, I think, um, and he says to this priest, he said... If God spares me, I will see to it that every ploughboy has a deeper, better, fuller understanding mm. of mm. the Bible mm. than you do. Mm. You know, the famous thing. I'm going to translate the Bible. So he goes away and he translates the Bible into English. So the thing I want to say to William for conversation is this. I think you got there and you didn't get there. Because what you did is you put the Bible into English. But the problem was that the priest, though he the priest could read the Latin, mm. didn't understand it, didn't understand what it meant. You put it into English so lots of people could read it mm. and not understand it. And then they've weaponized it and yeah. used it on one another. Yeah. They've dragged verses out of context yeah. and used them against their enemies. Yeah. So half the job is getting the Bible into language, that my our language. Mm. The other half 
is the task of helping people contextualise, yeah. understand yeah. the person and yeah. the author and the context yes. and what was going on in that society yeah. and what did these words mm. mean. Mm. They meant this and not that. Mm. So I think we've got as far as getting the Bible into English. Now the big task of the church is to help people understand the context. Mm. When I was at school, I did Shakespeare and um, it bored me stiff. I mean, Arthur, because I didn't understand a word of this stuff. But I've been into some oasis schools and I've, I've listened and watched Shakespeare talk. And I tell you, it's fantastic. That's not an advert for oasis schools. I'm sure they do it in all schools. I was in a, I was in a lesson recently where they were talking about Romeo and Juliet mm -hmm. and they were talking about love and they were talking about lust and they were talking about family rivalries, mm. and they were talking about the class system. Mm, mm. And they yeah, it went yeah. on and on. Yeah. Brought and it they, to life. Yeah, and yeah. I thought, hello, <laughs> this is amazing. This is about morality, yeah. and it's about ethics, yeah. and it's about standards, mm. and it's about attitudes. And, and these young people are coming to understand that William Shakespeare wrote about all these things. Mm, mm. Wow. I want to go see yeah. Romeo and Juliet <laughs> because I think this hits so many ethical yeah. issues on the head. Mm. So I was, this was an inner city school mm. and I was, and kids from tough backgrounds involved, many of them having brothers and sisters involved in gangs. Mm. Mm. And this was all so relevant yeah. to yeah. life when they get yeah. home. Yeah. Now that's what the Bible is, but it's not the way it's been taught very yeah. often. Yeah. I think what you do well in the book is is set that context and you explore the importance of hermeneutics, the, the process of, of interpretation, and then exegesis, what a particular text means in, in its context. Mm. And you look, yeah. and I think that that's a real strength of, of yeah. what you do. In that and, and you see, it's one of those things, isn't it, Dave? Because those two terms that we mm. both understand, mm. hermeneutics and exegesis, mm. like, ah, what yeah. are they? Yeah. Do you know, Canada? So, and that's unpacking all of that. Yes. So I hope in the book I explain. Hermeneutics means, simply means, to understand the author who wrote the words mm. in the first place. In fact, I'll use an illustration, so I might as well say it, uh, say it here. <laughs> so you hear somebody say, um, that's a hot dog. Mm. Now, what does that's a hot dog mean? If you happen to be at a football match with your friend and mm. it's half time and you're hungry and your friend says, that's a hot dog, it's probably a reference to a bun, a roll with a sausage in. Mm. But if you're in the car park of, of, uh, uh, at a beach town mm. Mm. on a hot August bank holiday weekend when the sun's baking down, you're strolling through the car park and your friend says, that's a hot dog, it's probably a reference to the fact that someone's left their dog in the back of their car, mm. and the dog's um, the dog is clearly hot and distressed. Mm. So the words "hot dog" mean something completely different depending on the life context of the yeah. speaker. So words don't give us meaning. Words can be misunderstood until you understand. Who said this? When did they say it? What was going on in their life? What was going on in the lives of the people that they said this to? Mm -hmm. That's hermeneutics. Yeah. Yeah. Exegesis is, so what do these actual words literally mean? Mm. Unless you do both of those things, then you're as likely as not to misunderstand rather mm. than understand mm. the text. Mm. Steve, thanks for that really clear 
understanding and unpacking of those terms, hermeneutic and exegesis. I think we can leave it there for now. I think it's brought us to the end of our discussion. So thank you for your time and thank you for the conversation. Thank you, David, because I know you know lots more about all these things than I'll ever do.